0: All right, Haggai chapter one, starting in verse seven. Haggai chapter one, starting in verse seven. Uh, we are talking about the discipline of the Lord today, and, and I, I my hope is that you will see discipline not just as a as an objectively good thing, but as a, as a gift from the Lord, right? And sometimes that's that's hard to see. Um, but, but we're going to, to trust the scriptures as we look at it. So as you're turning to Haggai chapter 1, verse 7, I, I'm going to go ahead and begin with prayer. So, so when you find it, uh, go ahead and bow your head with me. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this opportunity for us as, as brothers and sisters in Christ uh, to open up your word, to hear it preached, And to be changed by it. Father, I pray that you would conform our hearts to you through this sermon. Help us to love Jesus more. Help us to to be overwhelmed by the goodness of the cross and the resurrection. Help us to to, to love and trust the Holy Spirit more. Help us to be thankful for the way he guides and directs our hearts and, and and. brings scripture to mind when we're tempted to sin. And when we do fall into that temptation, the comfort and the peace that he brings as we remember Jesus' shed blood. Father, we pray that we would be humble and teachable, that we would sit under your word and not place ourselves over it. God, we pray that you would give us spirits that would be willing and ready To be disciplined, knowing that it is for our perseverance and our good. It is to sharpen our faith and and to help us help others follow Jesus. Father, help us to behold the wondrous things of your law. And we ask you to speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. It's in Jesus' precious and holy name that we pray. Amen. So... Discipline is a good thing. I I, I think most of us have seen that and and would agree with that statement. The idea of of accountability for action and training towards an ultimate goal is is a good thing. So it is good that the Lord calls us to live disciplined lives. It's good that in the New Testament, Paul uses the word training when talking about Christians maturing in their faith. But it's also good when we fall into sin, when we wander away from the Lord, that he disciplines us. Think about the best sports teams. Almost every one of them Got where they were, not because of talent, but because of disciplined hard work. Because coaches held them accountable. I'm sure we all know of someone who had all of the athletic talent in the world, but because of a lack of discipline, they didn't go anywhere with it. Think about businesses. The most successful businesses operate with discipline. They aim towards a shared goal. They work towards it, and they hold each other accountable when they veer off of the path. Think about families. Think about the children who grow up to respect and love their parents. It is the ones who are disciplined. And of course, in the DeHart home right now, Sometimes we scratch our heads and wonder if we 're doing enough because you know it feels a little unruly, but I think that 's what most houses with with 10, 8, and four year olds feel right, um, especially when that four year old is a boy. Um, I thought we were tough disciplinarians with our girls, and then I realized we didn't know we didn 't know half of the problems that came with having a beautiful bundle of energy and testosterone. But anyways, um, we are thankful for the Lord and the way he made our son. And my parents remind me that this is the Lord disciplining me a little bit because of the way I was when I was a little boy, right? But anyways, um, the reality is, is that God disciplines those he loves. We read it in Proverbs 3 when we began the service. We saw it in Hebrews chapter 12 as, as we Um, moved into the time of the sermon, but but there's this reality that God works and shapes and corrects his children. In fact, the author of Hebrews says, if you're not being disciplined for your sin, that's when you should worry, because only illegitimate children are not disciplined. And so, It is a good thing to be disciplined because it shows that God loves us. Is it an easy thing? Is it a fun thing? Of course not. But we are going to see in the second half of Haggai's first sermon. Remember, the book of Haggai, all two chapters of it, contain four of his sermons to the the returned exiles of Judah from Persia. And remember, he is calling them to rebuild the temple. And don't forget, we're going to touch on this again, but but I want to go ahead and remind us before we jump in. The temple was the place where God met his people. And we're told in the New Testament that Christians don't need temples for two reasons. One, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, our bodies are temples because the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our hearts. But two, in Ephesians chapter two, Paul tells us that when the people of God gather filled with the Holy Spirit, the church acts as a temple because the Lord moves and works when a group of his people gather together. And so we talked last week as as Haggai calls the people of Israel to rebuild the temple that we are not thinking about a building in this book when the temple is mentioned we should think about the gathered together people of God the church and so when the rebuilding of the temple is mentioned in Haggai don't think of building a building but think rather of making disciples and building them up in the faith and putting our time talent and money towards that effort So with that in mind, I want us to jump into the text so we can all feel uncomfortable as I have this week thinking about the discipline of the Lord. So Haggai chapter 1, starting in verse 7, here is what Haggai says to finish his first sermon to the people of Israel. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified says the Lord. So two things in verse 7 that we have to remind ourselves of from last week. Consider your ways. This is the refrain that Haggai mentions multiple times. He is asking the people of Israel to look at their hearts, to look at their hands, to look at their mind, and to look at what God has done for them. This isn't the people of Israel who have just experienced the exodus. These are the people of Israel that that have experienced the exodus, the kings, and now the exile. They went to Babylon and sat under a Babylonian king. And then they went to Persia and sat under a Persian king. And then that Persian king, Darius, allows them to return to Jerusalem, to rebuild the city, to rebuild the temple, that they may worship God again together. So while the people of Israel are called to consider their ways, they consider it in light of who God is and what he has done for them. And the terminology used for God in verse 7 is the Lord of hosts, just like it was used in the first part of chapter 1, that reminder that this is the God of the angel armies. This is a big God, bigger than our city, bigger than our little corner of the world. This is the God who oversees everything. This is the God of creation who is calling to his people to look to, them, to look to him as their father. And so he tells them to go up to the hills and bring down wood and rebuild the house. Some things that we need to understand about the history of the time, the stones from the temple in Jerusalem were still lying there. The stones that the Babylonians knocked down. They were still there, visible for the people of God to see. And not only are there stones there, but the Persian king actually imported cedar wood from Lebanon into Jerusalem so that the people of God could begin to rebuild the temple we we read this in Ezra chapter 3 verse 7 and this should take us back to when Solomon built the temple and every piece of wood that was put into that temple was from the cedars of Lebanon but God tells them you don't one you should use the wood that's just laying there because it was a gift from the king of persia and you should build with it but two you can go out into the hills around Jerusalem You can go into the Judean wilderness and find trees to build this temple with. And don't forget what they were doing wrong last week. They were putting wood panels on their home. So they were using wood. They knew where it was. They knew what they were doing with it. But instead of doing it to honor the Lord and help his people, they were doing it to make themselves look better. In Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 15, we're told that there were plenty of trees that had grown up in the hillside. And so they had the ability to get this wood. They were called to build the house, to construct the temple, to, to recreate the place where God meets with his people. And then he says something funny at the end of verse 8, right? He says, That I may take that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. This word, this Hebrew word for pleasure, um, when, when it's talking about sacrifices, it, it's actually, uh, it, it uses, the, the English translation goes towards acceptable or pleasing, right? Think about how many times in, in the book of Leviticus that offerings would be considered acceptable or pleasing to the Lord. But when, it, when this word is used for talking about God's interaction with his people, it's always translated as pleasure or delight. It brings us that reminder that God delights in his people. He finds joy in his people. He delights in the worship that comes from his people. The Lord wants to find pleasure in the people of God. But not only is he seeking pleasure from the rebuilding of the temple and the gathering of the saints, but he also wants to be glorified. Remember, we've talked about the word glory. In, in, in its Hebrew word and also in its Greek word, it carries with it the idea of being so heavy you cannot carry it and so bright that you cannot look at it. This is the big, grand, amazingness, I know that's not a word, but let's just go with it, of God. God. This is that reality that God is God and we are not. And God wants us to worship him as a collected people because he gets glory from that. And God created us to want to glorify him. He created us to long for glory. That's why we we love when people do amazing things. We love award shows, and and championship games. Because glory is something that God has put in the hearts of his people. But it's not ultimately meant to go to Kevin Durant when he wins the NBA championship. It's not ultimately meant to go to whatever actor or actress you want to throw out for an award. It's ultimately meant to go to him. Our hearts long to glorify God. So when he gets the glory, we get the good. And so this brings us to our our first point, or I guess our first sub-point underneath the fact that God disciplines those that he loves. And it is this, God is a glorious gift giver. His joy and glory are two of his best gifts. God is a glorious gift giver. His joy and glory are two of his best gifts. Where I go to when I think about this, when I was in high school, right, late 90s, graduated in 2000, um, Mustangs were, were making a big comeback. And so it was cool to own a Mustang in my high school. And there were a couple guys that, that owned Mustangs. And of course, they had girlfriends, right? And there was always that question of, you know, is she with him because she likes the way he treats her and she. She likes a sense of humor, or is she with him because of the car, right? And so it's, it's a question of, do we love God because of who he is, or do we love God because of the gifts that he gives us? And those gifts go across the board. For the people of God in the Old Testament, for Israel, the temple was a gift from God. It was a place to gather and sacrifice and worship For those of us who have come after the death and resurrection of Jesus, it is the church that is a gift from God. A called out and collected people worshiping and growing together and then going out to invite more people in. Ultimately, Jesus is the best gift his death on the cross for our sins, his resurrection to defeat the power of death and sin and hell. This is the greatest gift given to mankind. And so for those of you who maybe are sitting on the fence with faith, or maybe you would be so bold as to call yourself an unbeliever, You have to understand that God is a God of common grace. He gives common gifts to all men. The rain last night is is the perfect example of common grace. The rain fell on all farmland, right? Whether you love the Lord or not. It was a sense of common grace. And it's easy As an unbeliever, to be an ungrateful receiver, to not see it as a gift from God, to deny his existence or to deny his actions in the good gifts. So Christian, we respond to the gifts of God by using those gifts, by using our time and our talent and our money for his joy and his glory. Christian, we go into the public square chasing after his joy. And we go into the public square chasing after his glory, not chasing after other things. And if we aim to to give him joy, we will find joy. And if we aim to give him glory, we will find that he takes care of his kids. He is a good father. And so church as we are calling each individual person in here to give of their time, to give of their talents, and to give of their money for the glory and joy of the Lord, we, as a church body, have to use those time, talents, and money for the joy and glory of the Lord. We cannot squander them. We cannot waste them. We cannot look at the time that people give and the talent that they have and the money that they are sacrificially giving and think, what do we do with it? We know what to do with it. We go and make disciples. We train each other in the glories of the gospel and how to get the gospel to those who do not believe or do not understand. We leverage every good gift that God gives us as a collective body church, and we use it for his glory and his joy. So we go to verse 9. Haggai continues. He says, You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins. While each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew. And the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills. On the grain, the new wine, the oil. On what the ground brings forth. On man and beast and on all their labors. In verse 9, we see that they had much, but it came to little. This is how greed leads to unfulfilled expectations. This is how thinking, I just want to consume more and more and more, leads to us realizing that you can consume as much as you want. It is never enough. What did Mr. Rockefeller say in the early 1900s when he was asked, how much money is enough? Just a little more, right? You know this. You know the sins that you go after to fulfill yourself rather than to the gospel and the God of all glory and goodness. You know how you think if I could just get a little bit more of this sin, I will be satisfied. And it never satisfies. He says, You bring things home and I blow it away. Because God won't let things that will hurt us and ultimately spiritually kill us become a satisfaction. Because of God's love for you, he keeps you unsatisfied in the things of the world. Because of God's care for your soul, he is not going to let your identity be placed in anything but him and walk away happy with it. God tells them why he's doing this, why he wouldn't let all of the the extra stuff they were bringing in satisfy them, and why he's now going to call a drought onto the land. And, And it seems with the language that he's already begun to call that drought. Here's the reason he does that, because his house lies in ruin. Here is the problem for the people of Israel at this moment, their personal comfort is more important to them than God's glory or the good of God's people. Friends, this is a great pushback on American Christianity. All too often, because of the exceeding riches of our nation, we are way too comfortable, and we treasure comfort. We make an idol out of comfort, and we place that, we place our comfort over the glory of God and the good of the church. This is a serious indictment that God is laying on his people from Haggai. And then he gets to this, this idea that each of you is busy with your own house. How often do we choose the matters of our own home over God and his people? How often do our kids' things get in the way? How often do our desires for comfort and the joys of this world override the call of God on our lives and the fellowship with God's people. Friends, this is a reality for all of us, not just a few of us. This is a sin that I'm just going to be bold here. I'm not claiming the prophetic gift but I think all of us need to repent of. In verse 10, God says that the heavens held back the dew, and that the ground withheld the produce. And here's 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 where the scripture, if, if nine didn't push up against you, well, ten and eleven should. Because this is God acting as the primary mover. All right, let's, let, let's read 10 and 11 again. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labors. This is not, the drought is not an issue of the barometric pressure. The drought is not an issue of cloud formations. The, the, the drought comes from the Lord. He is the one who brings it. And he brings it as a means of discipline upon his people. The ground is withholding produce. And think about this for a second. These are a people who's, who they are, are, are an agrarian society. So I, I think this could speak to us, Right? It's not just the fact that they're growing food and that that food is being taken away. It's that their identity is being taken away. This is who they are. They plant their crops. They reap their harvest. And that's what makes them who they are. And God tells them, you belong to me first." Filled wine vats are not who make you who you are. Filled barns and fat calves are not who you are. You are my people because I chose you and I saved you and I've done it again and again and again. Your main identity is as my child belonging to my family. And then he uses the word called in verse 11. I called this drought. I'm the one who said to the clouds, do not produce rain. I am the one who said to the rivers, dry up. And notice how he mentions a drought on the land and the hills. What is the one thing that God wants them to do? He wants them to repent of their selfishness and rebuild the temple. He wants them to put effort into laying beams and laying stone so that the people of God have a place to worship him. So he wants them to go into the hills of Judah, chop them down, chop down the trees, and bring them in and build the temple. And he says, I'm going to bring drought on the land, so on the valley, but I'm also going to bring it up into the hills. I'm going to confront you where you are. And then the mention of of the wine and the oil and the grain, man and beast, all their labor. He's saying nothing is going to happen. Even you as humans and your beasts will suffer. He is telling them that there is no hope apart from him. They must repent of their sinful selfishness. They must trust in his goodness and they must obey him. The response to this message from from Haggai is not to go into a room and study it together and say, oh wow, that's deep and good and amazing and then go back to life as normal. That's not what God wants from them. He wants them, as James tells us in James chapter one, to not just be merely hearers of the word, but to be doers. Do what God is calling you to do. So I I wanna, because, you know, you don't give away the ending to the next show, right? But I, I, I want to lay some peace upon you and help you to see why this is a good thing that God calls them to do this. Next Sunday, please still come, but they're going to repent, and they're going to respond with obedience. It is a wonderful moment among the people of God. Unfortunately, there are too many times in the history of the people of God, both in Israel and the church, when we haven't done that, okay? But here, there is repentance and the right thing done. And this reminds us, this is our 2nd subpoint. God disciplines his people for their joy and his glory. God disciplines his people for their joy and his glory. Again, what's our desire for discipline? It's to give accountability and to train. When I left home for college, Growing up as a type 1 diabetic in a home with a nurse, my mom knew what to do, right, to keep my blood sugars level. And so our, our home was always filled with Wheaties and Cheerios and Rice Krispies, and that's it. So when I went away to college and went to that wonderful thing called a college cafeteria, for a good long while, I didn't care what was being served because I was going to eat Golden grams and Cinnamon Toast Crunch and Lucky Charms and all of the Fruit Loops, I mean, all these wonderful cereals that I never had the opportunity to eat. I, I partook happily in, in college. Obviously, that was not good for me. It wasn't good for my diabetes. It wasn't good for my overall health. My wife has been slowly and... In a, in a well-trained way, correcting that course that was set in college. And so I've gone from having golden grams for dinner to eating, and please don't tell our kids this, because um, I'll get in trouble for, for busting out the secret, um, but she makes this great fried rice with cauliflower. All right? and you have no idea it's cauliflower. It's the greatest thing in the world. Um, but like I love that stuff. And if you would have told me as an 18-year-old freshman in college eating golden grams for dinner, one day you're going to eat cauliflower rice and you're going to like it, um, I would be thrown off by that. But here's, here's the reality. Um, discipline is always for our good and it's always for our joy. It's always to lead us to something better. And so not only do I enjoy the taste of cauliflower rice, I actually feel better after I eat it, right? And so this is a reminder that God's discipline is good. As we think about the the overarching theme of salvation history, God's discipline is for our perseverance. Think about how many times in the New Testament either Jesus or one of his disciples says, those who persevere to the end will be saved. Those who push through the persecution and the difficulties and the trials, those are the ones that will be saved. Discipline is meant to help you persevere. And friends, friends, Don't miss this. If you are an unbeliever, God's actions like this, they're not meant as discipline. They are a foretaste of his punishment that is coming for your sins. And so for believers, when God steps in and steps on our toes, it's meant to discipline us and send us in the right direction. But for unbelievers, this is you tasting what your ultimate end is apart from God. Apart from Christ, God's wrath and justice still hang over your head. Apart from repenting from your selfishness. Apart from repenting from you thinking that you are the ultimate authority in your life. Apart from repenting from you thinking that you're God. When God does these things, it's not for discipline. It's to warn you about what's ahead. Now the good news is, Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. Jesus was crushed for our sins. Upon him, the chastisement for our sins was laid upon him. By his wounds we are healed. It is by the death of Jesus that we do not face the punishment of God. It is by the death of Jesus that God goes from ultimately punishing us with eternity in hell to disciplining us for our good to send us in the right direction. Christian, the way we respond to this is with thanks We must be thankful for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must trust God in those times of discipline. We must be quick to repent of our sins and quick to seek a life of obedience. It is a good thing to follow the Lord. In the public square, we need to realize that we are disciplined by God for the task of disciple making. God correcting you isn't just for you. God correcting you is for the benefit of unbelievers who need to hear about Jesus and for the benefit of believers who need your help in their discipleship. God correcting you of your sin is not just to make some sort of inner happiness or inner peace bubble up in you. It will, but that's not the main point. The main point is that you will worship God as greater than you thought he was yesterday and you will help Other believers realize the importance of trusting and obeying Jesus. Discipline, while it is on you, is not ultimately about you. And church, this reminds us, we don't need to be disciplined discerners. And what I mean by that is, do you remember... After Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans, there were quite a few Christian folks around the nation who were quick to tell news stations, this is the judgment of God on a wicked city. And here's here's the problem with that, okay? I'm not saying that it wasn't meant as a wake-up call to New Orleans or to the United States, but you realize that within about a week and a half to two weeks, Bourbon Street was up and going again. The strip clubs were open, like the, the the bad parts of New Orleans were back to operating at full strength. But there was a Southern Baptist Seminary that has faithfully trained men to preach the gospel. In fact, we have a product of that seminary sitting in the back of our, of our sanctuary right now. And it was destroyed. It took years to rebuild that seminary. They're back to the glory of God and, and the, the, the effort of good men and women. But we're not, you're not meant to point a finger at somebody and say, this is God disciplining you. That's not your job. Okay? It may very well be true that God is disciplining them. It may very well be true that it's like Paul with his thorn in 2 Corinthians. It's like Job having everything taken away from him, even though he had not sinned before God to cause that. You don't know why people are walking through trials. It is not your responsibility to tell them that this is the discipline of the Lord, that he is angry with their sin. What you are meant to do, what we as the church are meant to do, is to help fellow saints persevere. We are to pick each other up and walk together following Jesus. And so if God is bringing discipline into the life of someone in our church, and they are humble and repentant about it, we will pick them up. And we will, as Paul says in Galatians 6, we will Bear their burden with them. Friends, the discipline of the Lord is good, but it can feel awful when done alone. The church does not need to make repentant sinners feel worse about their sins. We are to help those who are repenting and seeking to follow Jesus persevere in their following Jesus. Now, if it's unrepentant sin, that's, that's another, it's another discussion, right? Because we want the law of the Lord to break their hearts and then build them back up with the gospel. But when we're dealing with folks who know that they've done wrong and are seeking to correct that wrong and follow Jesus... They need our help, not our finger in their chest. And so I want to finish with this thought. God disciplines those he loves for their perseverance. God disciplines those he loves for their perseverance. This is more important than a well-disciplined basketball team. This is more important than a well-disciplined Fortune 500 company. This is even more important than a well-disciplined family. We are walking with Christ towards eternity. And what we need is the discipline of God to help us persevere. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning.